following podcast contains explicit language. Hide your children. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of December 18th, 2023. On this week's show, we'll talk about Draymond Green's indefinite suspension and whether this one, this time, will change things for him or for the Golden State Warriors. We'll also discuss the Washington Wizards and Washington Capitals reportedly leaving D.C. for Northern Virginia. Is it a real thing or just classic sports owner extortion? And finally, we'll dip our toes and our throwing arms into the transfer portal and explain why every quarterback in college football seems to be changing teams. I'm in Washington, D.C., and I'm the author of The Queen and the host of the podcast One Year. The finale of our 1990 season is out later this week, so be sure to check that out or, you know, it's your loss. Stefan Fatsis is out this week. But with me from California, a word freak himself, among other genres of freak. It's Joel Anderson. <laughs> That's all a reference to my to my speed and, and uh, strength, I assume. The freak. <laughs> Not anything else. They, the freak They call part, you yeah. the freak before Javon Curse. They did. They did once upon a time. You know, I was, I, I mean, we've, we've, we don't need to go into real detail, but we've, we've heard about my youthful athletic exploits on here before. So We don't talk about that anymore. We don't? I thought you didn't talk about it anymore. You've you've been past it. Well, I feel like since Stefan sits around talking about Scrabble and his <laughs> softball exploits, I'm just like, well, shit. I mean, I can't talk about being the fastest ten year old in the country anymore. I'd kind of tune that down, but it seems like it's time to crank it back up. Uh, all right, consider it cranked. And now, joining us for the whole show, a man who Ted Leonsis style recently left DC when another spot in the country gave him a better deal. It's Slate contributing writer and the host of Joel's favorite college football podcast, Split Zone Duo. This is true. Alex Kirshner. Welcome, Alex. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Joel. I sort of made my JaVale McGee move, if you will, from <laughs> D.C. <laughs> to Los Angeles. Real, I mean, people will know. People will be familiar with that. Uh, we're, yeah. we're familiar. And of course, you know, Alex is one of the few people I'm just willing to give $10 a month uh, you know, that's that's something I'm willing to do. But, you know, the Split Zone Duo, as you mentioned, this is my favorite college podcast. They're on Substack. I'm listening to the extra episodes, you know, reading the post. Alex, this is a, this is a real honor for me. Jo- you know, I'm not blowing smoke up your ass. Like, I I, I hyped you up to Josh when, when I heard you were going to be coming on. So I appreciate it. I'm ahead of both of your slow burn seasons, multiples at this point. <laughs> but it's a mutual honor to be with you. I I, I appreciate the chance to come on and and not just listen, but also hang up at the end of the show. (laughs) (laughs) I enjoy the hanging up part too. In mere moments, we are going to check in on who Draymond Green punched this time. Uh, But first, (laughs) Slate Plus members, I'm talking to you. Thanks a lot for your support. You're good people with excellent taste. And this week, we'll be treating you to a bonus segment of Alex's design. He wants us to ask and answer the question, Mike Tomlin, should the Steelers part ways with one of the greatest coaches in NFL history is a time. Should he join Bill Belichick, maybe, on the unemployment line? If you want to hear that and bonus segments on other Slate shows and get ad-free listening for all Slate podcasts and support us, you need to be a Slate Plus member. To sign up, go to slate.com slash hangupplus. That's slate.com slash hangupplus. The Golden State Warriors kick off a three-game homestand this week which includes the return of Jordan Poole with the Washington Wizards on Friday. Ordinarily, that would be a huge deal since it'd be the first time Poole has faced his former team since they traded him away in July. 
But Poole's return to San Francisco won't have quite the same buzz without Draymond Green. And why won't Green be there? Well, as many of you already know, Green is currently serving an indefinite suspension because of his flailing attack on Phoenix's Yusuf Nurkic in the third quarter of the Warriors' 119-116 loss to the Suns on December 12th. In the NBA statement announcing the suspension, the Ling said, this outcome takes into account Green's repeated history of unsportsmanlike acts. Here's Warriors coach Steve Kerr, who runs through a short history of those acts. Someone who I believe in, someone who I have known for a decade, who I love for his loyalty, uh, his uh, commitment, his passion, uh, his love for his, his teammates, his friends, his family. We're trying to help that guy um, because the one who, uh, you know, grabbed Rudy and choked Rudy, the one who took a, a wild flail at, at uh, Yusuf, uh, the one who punched Jordan last year, um, that's, that's the guy who has to change. So, Josh, it was clear from the moment that Green's hand landed across Nurkic's face that he was going to end up missing some games. And on this Monday morning, we've learned from Shams that Green has started counseling and is suspected to remain sidelined via suspension for at least the next three weeks. But overall, like, what do you think about the league's response here? In retrospect, and I think also at the time, I'm trying to think back, it was really weird that the league didn't do anything about the Jordan Poole punch. And what we've learned since, I think, was this from Ramona Shelburne's reporting in, in ESPN, is that the league kind of respected the Warriors too much to want to get in there and muck around in their business that, you know, with Bob Myers, with Joe Laco, with Steve Kerr, they had the structure in place to really deal with this on their own. And what the Warriors did after it was it both happened and the video came out, um, you know, after one of their players punched another one of their players in their face, Draymond Green punching Jordan Poole is nothing. He didn't miss any games. He was maybe, a, I think this was preseason, he was away from the team for a little bit of time. And then ultimately, Draymond got a contract extension and Jordan Poole got traded, which there are on-court reasons for those things. But if you look at all of that stuff kind of in combination, it's impossible to make any other argument than that Draymond Green won. He got what he wanted. He was rewarded or at least not punished for what he'd done. And so, I mean, Alex, this is an adult. I don't want to talk to him about him like a, he was a, a child and say like, oh, because they let him punch this other guy. He's like, you know, he he needed to have been disciplined more and he would be in, in line now. I don't think there's that kind of a direct line here. But the Warriors did kind of establish the parameters and the league did too that, um, you know, Draymond Green for doing something much worse than he did in this case with Yusuf Nurkic wasn't going to get punished. And so this to me just seems like a little bit too little too late. And for the league to take any kind of high ground around, you need to sit out now, you need to like take some time to figure yourself out when nothing was done before. It just, it seems a little bit rich to me. Maybe this is silly of me, but I think there's something cutting about an indefinite suspension that is escalatory in a way that even a longer suspension with a specific number of games attached may not serve. Like 
You're so you bad. Get, we don't even know what number to attach to it. <laughs> right. It's like it's like a damn. This was bad, and also like damn, bro. You need some assistance situation that is inferred by an indefinite suspension. That like wouldn't that be chastening to you? Like if you're told you're suspended from Slate indefinitely, not for two weeks, not for a month. And like, even if you were told three months and it's a sabbatical and you might go and do something during those three months, you're told, get it together and you can't come back to work until you've got it together. I think that that, even if you wind up suspended for a shorter period of time, but with a, a definite sticker price on that suspension, there's something that would, that would cut me about that. And I don't know Draymond. I don't know if he sees it the same way, but that was how I would process discipline of this nature. So I think it might be pretty significant. Well, I think it's interesting you, you you said it that way, Alex, because I'm I took note of the way that players talked about him in the aftermath um, of the of him hitting Nurkic. You know that you know you got Rudy Gobert, Kevin Durant, and Nurkic himself saying this brother needs help. And even though that we've all kind of joked about you know Draymond. Draymond's sort of inability to, you know, control himself. And then there's been the, you know, the clips of him, you know, his highlights of all his flagrant fouls and the times you've tackled people on the floor and initiated, you know, some other dust-ups. It does seem like there's something darker to that, um, to it, because they actually seem to be talking to him, not in a way, you know, not like, man, you know, you know, that's just Draymond. Or, you know, when Rasheed Wallace would get technicals or whatever, and it's just like, ah, you know, that's just Sheed. He can't, you know, stop himself. Like, they seem to be hinting that something else is going on here. And I'm just, w- without being too serious about it, I'm all, I'm reminded that there's a lot that we don't know about players anymore for lots of reasons. But um, a lot of times when players or people do strange things, it's because of things we'll never know until there's like a huge TikTok in a major media outlet or something, right? Or they release a memoir. But I just, I wonder if there's something more serious happening behind the scenes that we don't know about. And that's why the indefinite suspension, the player saying, no, 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 I hope Draymond really gets some help. Like he really needs to take a look at himself because they don't seem, like it didn't seem like a lot of people in and around him are taking this for a joke in the way that we might be on social media or any media itself, right? I think that's right. And I think we also don't really know what's going on inside the Warriors franchise because there are reports that bubble up every now and again. I think you guys have probably seen them that are suggesting or even outright saying that the team never recovered from the punch last year, that even with separating Jordan Poole and Draymond Green, that it's just not the same there. I mean, this is a team that when it it won its first championship they played a different way than anybody else had played in the NBA. And that is a Steph Curry creation. That is like because of Steph Curry, but it was putting Draymond Green in the lineup instead of David Lee that unlocked that team's potential and made them play the way that they did. I was listening to Zach Lowe talk about this, and there's like a kind of um, alternate history where the Warriors maybe still win a championship or two or four, but have just a more conventional player in that role. Somebody who's not a point center, somebody who's not one of the greatest defensive players ever, somebody who doesn't allow them to play the death lineup or the five out way or the the way that they played. And they're still great, but they're not transcendent. And so you can say that Draymond has like benefited from playing with some of the greatest shooters of all time. You can say that he's benefited from 
or maybe not benefited from having the support structure around him that allows him to be himself. But it is totally true that this team wouldn't be this team without Draymond Green. And just listening to Steve Kerr try to walk this line of, we need this guy, we respect this guy, we love this guy, he's allowed us to be who we are, but he's also been the thing that's destroyed us, whether it's in the finals when he got suspended for kicking LeBron in the groin. I noticed he didn't mention that in his litany of Draymond incidents or the fight that he had, you know, on the bench with Kevin Durant that may or may not have led Durant to leave. I mean, this is the kind of devil's bargain of this franchise. And I think, you know, not to re- not to fast forward too far, but I think any team would take four titles in exchange for a guy who's like caused the amount of trouble that Gr- Draymond Green has had, given the like rings culture in the NBA, like every team would, would make that deal. I think so as well. And I think that it's telling that the Warriors, not just at this moment, have decided that he's still worth all of this and that, you know, he's not someone they just want to cast aside, but that even when he punched Jordan Poole in the head, like, the Warriors were going to keep that one pretty much under wraps. Like it's not yeah. just the, the, that the NBA didn't uh, wasn't planning to come down to them until and, and maybe stayed away from it because of their respect for the franchise. But like there was sort of a don't speak ill of the family outside of the family thing that seemed to be going on even at that time. Can you guys think of another example where a video comes out? It's worse than you than they were talking about, yeah. and still nothing happens. It's because yeah. the cliche is always like, "Oh yeah, the video, you know, the video changes everything. The video, um, you know, will lead to suspension or lead to criminal, you know, not in this case, but like when it's like a police matter, it's like, oh my god, like we have to arrest whoever now." And this video came out and nothing happened. Well, you know what's interesting is that I wonder if something would have happened if. It had not fallen during what yeah, would have been yeah, yeah. ring night for the Warriors, right? So, like, or if, if it had been during the season as opposed to preseason, or during the season, right? But I mean, I guess that just shows you sort of what they were prioritizing. Not that one of their team leaders, the face of the franchise, attacked somebody and it was caught on camera. It was that well, he needs to be on the floor for ring night, which I mean, you know, again, I mean, there is, that is a very special night, right? Like, I don't want to deny that, but. If somebody does something that serious, they don't usually get to do that and then go out and like, you know, bask in adulation in glory, right? Like that from then on, it already sent the wrong message. But I wish I remember, I mean, we people can go back and listen to what we said at the time last year about this. But, you know, I think we all sort of knew back then that, you know, the Warriors could not be trusted to sort of handle this internally, that it was always going to require somebody from the outside to come in. And do this. And so, I mean, I think what you see from this, and, you know, Alex, you kind of hinted at it, is that people are just tired of this shit. And I mean, and Ramona Shelburne's reporting confirms that, that the NBA would just kind of looked over there and they're like, we're sick of your shit. Like, so, <laughs> so we're stepping in now because we just can't trust you all to handle this on your own. Yeah. Well, the Warriors aren't good on the court this year, haven't been good. They're an aging team. Draymond has actually been good when he's been on the court. He's just never been on the court. Clay Thompson has certainly struggled. Um, and and so, uh, you know, Draymond has this this four-year, $100 million contract. Um, and so the question is, would anyone want to trade for him? The question is, do the Warriors have any other option from a competitive standpoint other than to try to get everybody back together and playing well again? Because, you know, Steph in his mid-30s is still... Um, seems like he could be the best player on a 
championship team. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts, Alex, on like where they go from here. I mean, bad things ahead, as I think is the case when you have <laughs> salary cap sports with great cores that stay together for a long time. Uh, this has happened to eventually every NBA dynasty. It has happened to every quasi dynasty in the other salary cap professional sports. The Pittsburgh Penguins and hockey are headed towards this right now with a bunch of Hall of Famers who are going to miss the playoffs together for the second year in a row. Uh, we could talk about uh, various iterations of, you know, not just like the Belichick Brady Patriots and what they're going through right now, not that just the Belichick Patriots, but that really every elite sports program in a salary capped sport has gone through eventually. The Warriors can't defy gravity and they're not going to. And I don't know enough to know how long it will last, but of course it's going to end badly. That's that's the way these things have to go. And, and if you have players who would respond well, not not to say that this is the kind of way that you have to respond that Draymond has, but if you have players who would respond well to kind of fading out, out of relevance in their sport, uh, then those probably weren't the kind of players who were going to get you to the heights that the Warriors got to in these last eight, nine, ten years. Right. And I think, you know, the Warriors championship a couple of years ago against the Celtics maybe sort of fooled everybody, right? Because it had seemed like the Warriors were already on the decline, like they'd missed the playoffs a couple of years. And then, you know, out of nowhere, they come and win a championship. Um, and, you know, Steph has a great year. And they put, you know, they caught a couple of breaks, like any team that wins a championship. They missed, a, you know, Giannis was hurt that that postseason. So was uh, KD and Kyrie and, you know, James Harden. So they, they you know, maybe they didn't get the teams they should have got, but that championship fooled everybody into thinking that maybe the the life of this dynasty, there was more to it than, than what there actually is. And so, yeah, like Alex's point, like we're seeing what actually happens to a team that gets old, like they're getting old, the players are getting less relevant. And the only thing that makes this is unique is that Draymond is sort of a combustible dude. And so he's he's publicly declining, like on and off the, and off the floor in a certain way that is makes it more noticeable. But like you said, like, this happens to everybody, and it just seems like the Warriors do now. I actually had a question for you all, though, about, like, because I've heard a lot of people talk about, like, the labor implications of this, right? And I don't know if, you know, I know Alex, you're a labor guy, right? It, well, we're, I mean, we, we should all be labor guys, you know. Right? All WGA members here, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're all labor guys. But I am sort of curious because, I mean, the NBA did need to do something here, but, like, to hand over this much power to them, like, I— I don't know if this is the Warriors' fault. I don't know if this is the Players Association' fault, but it just there is something kind of weird about just kind of ceding that sort of power to the league, right? Even though this is a serious matter, it is. I think it's. I think that this is a tightrope that is awkwardly walked by a number of sports leagues right now. I think it is weird when the NFL Players Association allows the NFL to dole out $48,000 fines because a running back trying to block TJ Watt or whoever hit him a little high, um, trying to prevent him from killing the quarterback. I think it's weird when uh, the NHL's Department of Player Safety levies too small a fine sometimes uh, because someone kind of in, in a way that would be criminal if it wasn't hockey attacked somebody on the ice. And I think it's weird in the NBA Players Association's case when you might just not not necessarily give Adam Silver carte blanche to discipline your members however you want, but where you do seem to be pretty deferent to league priorities on player discipline, especially in a case like this. And I wonder why that is. And maybe there's a reasonable reason for it. Maybe that reason is that 
is that Draymond Green's actions that led to this point are pretty anti other members of the MBPA. You know, it's a little bit awkward perhaps for the union to have an active role in disciplining one player because he choked out another unit member uh, or punched another unit member in practice or hit another unit member in the face this week. I, I think those internal union politics can be a little dicey sometimes. And maybe that's one of the reasons why they've, they've seemed comfortable letting the league office take the lead. But it is a little curious. I would agree with you, Joel. Um, we're having this conversation the same week that John Morant is scheduled to come back. And that was a kind of similar situation in that it was this latest 25-game suspension was an escalation from an earlier one based on this idea, I think, that Adam Silver was pretty explicit about that John Morant was out of control and doing a similar thing, like being seen with a gun on social media after being suspended for doing the exact same thing. I think it's a little bit different in that John Morant is a much younger guy. And I, I think there's not like stipulations in whatever rule book or collective bargaining agreement that you should discipline someone more or less based on their level of seniority. But I think with Morant, the sense that you get, and, and I wonder if you guys agree, is that this guy is a young superstar. He's a face of the league. We have to get this under control right now because he's going to be around for another 10 or 15 years. And, um, you know, not just as a player, not just as potentially a championship contender, but as like a guy with his own shoe who's in commercials. And the, this guy, to be a representative of our league, we like need to nip this in the bud. And that's where the Draymond thing is just a little bit odd because... You know, he's it's a similar kind of rhetoric, like we need to get this under control, it's escalating, we need to stop. But he's old <laughs> in NBA terms. And there've been there's been ample opportunity. And so, you know, one reasonable conclusion you could come to is like this is just who this guy is. And I'm not trying to like catastrophize and say he's the worst person in the world or say that it's like more horrible than it is. And I also think that when his playing career is done, he's still going to be in broadcasting. I bet you in 10 or 20 years, people are going to joke about this, like Charles Barkley throwing somebody through a plate glass window. I bet you. Yeah. Because he's so, because he's so um, charismatic and voluble. I bet you, I'm saying in 10 or 20 years, I'm not saying in one or two years. Okay. I was wondering if he was jeopardizing his broadcasting career by like having this be the first or second line in any biography that's going to come out about I him, think right? Like maybe, I mean, I, but my guess is no. I that's just my my guess. But it just seems a little bit, you know, like what is the NBA trying to uh, accomplish here? Like they're not there doesn't seem like a reasonable hope that he's going to like become a new person and so <laughs> it just it feels like maybe a case where you just put a number on it rather than say indefinite like you know we're gonna we're gonna really teach this guy a lesson this time it just seems like that ship has sailed a long time ago yeah absolutely i mean you know here i've, I've been in the bay for eight years man and you know you're hearing people you know the columnists you know radio station hosts out here that are talking about getting rid of him you know like that maybe this is time to separate and i would have never expected to hear that out here in the bay because if anybody has an appreciation for him it's the people out here. Like, he doesn't have the same value for any other NBA franchise, so that they're willing to give up on him, potentially, that um, that seems like it could be the end. In the next segment, the Virginia Wizards. 
Last Wednesday, Ted Leonsis, the principal owner of the NBA's Washington Wizards and NHL's Washington Capitals, announced that he's moving those teams from downtown Washington, D.C. to a 70-acre site in northern Virginia, Alexandria, to be exact. Now, listen to this part closely. Leonsis and his corporate entity, Monumental Sports and Entertainment, said they've reached the framework of an agreement with the Virginians, which my business-to-English dictionary tells me is not the same thing as an actual agreement. And also, the arena they're going to move into would open in 2028 if the Virginia legislature approves. Alex, the Washington Post reported last year that the Wiz and the Caps would stay in D.C. if the D.C. government ponied up $600 million for improvements to the downtown arena, Capital One Arena. And last week, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser said her best offer was $500 million, which is still a metric crap ton of my tax dollars to watch Jordan Poole, just trying to get him into every uh, intro, throw the ball out of bounds. So, Number one, is this Virginia deal for real, or is everyone still just negotiating slash extorting each other? And number two, if it is for real, what does it mean for D.C. and Virginia and for fans of these franchises? Uh, number one, I think yes and yes. It's it's real and it's extortion. I take Ted Leonsis not all the way at his word, but much of the way to his word that if he doesn't get what he wants from the District of Columbia, he's going to go and take the package that's been offered to him by Glenn Young and the governor of Virginia and take his sports teams and go across the river to a part of Northern Virginia that I, in a decade living in DC, never went to, that none of my friends ever went to, and that I'm sure has lovely spots and residents nearby, but I hear they're not very happy about it either. Um, so it seems like this could work out really well for Ted and really well for the outgoing governor of Virginia. Uh, less clear how well it would work out for anybody else. Uh, and Joe, I know you know the DC area well, um, Yourself, I, I think that what it would mean for Washington, D.C. to lose these teams is a really sad, continued hollowing out of downtown D.C. And I think that would be an enormous bummer. I'm aware of, you know, sort of the transitive matter there, which is if it's such a bummer to D.C. to lose these teams, then why shouldn't the city pay up? Uh, it's a fair argument. It's not that Ted Leonsis doesn't have an economic case that these teams are a driver for downtown D.C. It's 80-plus game nights a year where thousands of people are coming to this neighborhood uh, in the Chinatown Gallery Place area of D.C. and going and watching sports. Um, but there's also a moral argument that Ted Leonsis's net worth has a lot of zeros on it. And sometimes if you have that much money, maybe you could just do the right thing and not give a body blow to a city that has done a ton to add zeros to your net worth. So he's right. And yet what he's doing here is, in my opinion, pretty vile. And I hope he doesn't get away with it. I don't want to glorify a Poland too much, but he, and or, or even owners of that era of a gener different generation, but a Poland was an owner who was probably more progressive than most and believed in the city at a time when it was really hard to. I mean, you know, the things that people have said about Washington, D.C. today, like go back 30, 40 years and the things that people said about Washington, D.C. then, um, and it was even more pronounced. And, you know, I mean, there are a lot of reasons why people, um, you know, have negative feelings about D.C. or negative stereotypes about it. And we don't have to get into it, but I I think if you listen to the show enough, you, I think you know what I'm hinting at. That, like, you know, it's the majority black population of D.C. Um, 
opens it up to pot shots in the same way that like politicians take shots at Chicago or Detroit or whatever, anything else. And so, you know, when a Poland invested in the city at that time, that was a really, really big deal. And, um, the one thing that I, I, I would mention is like everything really started changing uh, for the Wizards when Ted Leonsis came in. Because if you remember, Ted Leonsis is the guy that basically nudged A. Poland aside. He's the guy that wanted to bring in Michael Jordan, right? Like, so you can just say, like, it's been 20 years of terrible decisions by this dude. And this is just a sort of a continuation of that. And, you know, yeah, it's inevitable. Like, he's he's from a different generation of, of owners that have, you know, less ties to the local community. And they're more willing to do shit like this. I guess the... In, and one other thing I'll say, because you're right, Alex, I mean, I lived in D.C. before I moved out to California. I love D.C. I wanted to move there. I wanted to move back. I wanted to stay there. And my first office when I moved into D.C. was literally right across the street from the Verizon Center. And you're right. Like, it was just something, even when, like, Georgetown would play there, like, there would be a buzz in town, like, when there would be a Absolutely. game there. And uh, it's it's one of the few, like... I mean, because I don't believe that, you know, we can talk about this some other time, but I don't believe arenas and stadiums necessarily drive development in urban areas. But it certainly seemed to be the case here that it had done something right, like something at least marginally positive and, and that that might be taken away from the city. Josh, it's just really frustrating to me. And you I, you love the city even more than I do. Um, but like that, that's just it's really depressing. And you, you just hate to see a guy like Ted Leonsis get the win like this, you know? Well, I, I think Ted Leonsis was operating in a market um, that Daniel Snyder was also operating in. And so, I mean, compared to that guy, anyone's going to look like just an absolute genius and moral leader. And um, with Snyder out of the picture, I think he ascends in the DC bad sports owner rankings. But, you know, I think that for those of us who like to think of ourselves as like <laughs> rational and progressive sports fans, the idea of um, handouts to owners and the idea that these stadiums are uh, a good deal for, for cities, it's both like anathema, like stadiums are bad, are, are bad economic deals. The um, cities and taxpayers don't get back what they pay for them. But and this is the exception because Abe Poland paid for the arena, $180 million. It's privately uh, owned. And like for all that we can say that like economic development studies are total bunk, you know, we all know what that arena did for downtown DC, how it spurred all this development. It's in the footprint of the city. It's not moated by parking. There's all sorts of stuff around it, a metro, restaurants, everything. It drove so much development and so many people. I mean, I went to the Wizards-Pelicans game last week. It was the first game I'd been to in a while. The team Ooh. is ass. Like, there's posters of, like, Corey Kispert everywhere. Like, that's what that's what kind of era we're in. And there's still even, there's still thousands upon thousands of people who go to even a bad NBA game. There's all sorts of people milling around and doing all sorts of stuff. And so I, I think it's totally right, Alex, that if these team, if the arena was never there, then that area would be totally different. And if the teams leave, I guess it's more of an open question to see what they could do with it in terms of concerts and stuff. But it seems like there would be a pretty massive hole. But it's also a two-way street. And, you know, Abe Poland might have done a lot for the city by putting the teams in that place. But uh, there's a metro hub right underneath the arena. 
that is subsidized not just yeah. by the taxpayers of three different localities, but also everyone who rides that metro um, and uh, puts money into this public work that gets a lot of people to that game because there's not a par- not a lot of parking around. Uh, the city was okay with this giant tract of land and this incredibly desirable central location in the city being used for private enterprise, specifically for the the benefit of of the Abe Pollens and eventually Ted Leonsis of the world. So. It's a two-way deal, and you know, I'm sure the metro is going to go to. I know the metro is going to go to where Ted Leonsis is proposing with Virginia to put this new arena too. But the idea that DC hasn't already done so much for this guy and for these teams is weird. And I also think that, like Joel, I think you're sort of alluding to this earlier, not even alluding to it, but getting to it explicitly. I think that with the Wizards explicitly, there is a. I don't know that it's a motivation, but at least an outcome here of fleeing a lot of your black fan base that is impossible to ignore. I think it's less obvious with the Capitals. The Capitals, I think, have a more suburban white fan base. It's hockey. That won't shock anybody. Um, But like the Wizards are a DC operation, tried and true. And they're very tied in not just to the city's culture, but to the city's black culture specifically. And that's, that's obvious if you live in DC. And now you go out to the burbs, you make people cross a river. It doesn't smell great. It doesn't smell a lot different than when the Atlanta Braves left Turner Field and went out to Cobb County. And yeah, I mean, yes. that worked out great for Liberty Media, but does that mean we have to cheerlead it that they did it? Absolutely not. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, the thing is, I mean, we're talking about, you know, DC residents and what it'll mean for DC. Like, I mean, do Virginia taxpayers want to foot the bill for this shit either? I mean, like, I mean, okay, you know, you'll get NBA basketball, but are you really? Are you, I mean, look, what has Todd Leonsis done in the last 20 years to engender any trust that he's going to build a franchise that is going to give you a return on that money, right? Like, at least if we give you all that money, will you build a fucking good team, right? You're not even getting that sort of guarantees. It is funny that they're like grubbing for money from D.C., at the moment when the team is like, last time I checked, like three and twenty. <laughs> They're a joke. I mean, they, they. I mean, they, if you made a team out of Shaq and the Fool clips, that would be the Wizards. Well, right? I, I mean, we we kid, but I I think there is like a larger point to be made here, which is that they they're losing on purpose. They're tanking to get mm-hmm. draft picks. They disassembled the the team, and there is an implicit agreement with fans when you do that, which is stick with us for a couple of years three mm-hmm. to five years and we'll be back and we'll be good again when we move to Virginia. I mean, it, it's a really weird moment to have those two things happening at, at once. Also, I'm not sure I'm not sure how happy they're going to be with what this actually does for the culture around these teams. Josh, when was the last time you went to Landover to watch the Washington football team play? Oh, never, but that's kind of hmm. tied up with my refusal to support Dan Snyder. But like, yeah, I have I have a personal ban on FedEx Field. I refuse to go there. It's it's, it's horrible. Impossible to get to. It's, it's awful. It's horrendous. You'd have to you would literally have to pay me. I have been paid to go there, but it would have to be a lot. And you can't say the same about going to Capital One. Sorry, Joe. I, I no, 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 no. I, I, that's a good point because I mean it's the same thing that happened in Atlanta, right? Like people didn't want to go downtown to see the Braves, and so they've plucked it out there in Cobb County, which is not an easy place to get to. And anybody that lives there or has been to a game there will tell you that traffic is a snarl. Like it is, you know, totally fucked up the traffic flow in that area. And it wasn't great to begin with, but like this has only made it worse. So anybody, I just, <laughs> I thought that we had learned 
in the previous generation over those last 20 or 30 years or so that like fans don't necessarily like driving out to the suburbs to watch these games, right? Like it's more difficult that, you know, there was a reason that the urban renewal thing had some heft to it that like, oh, people like and enjoy going into cities and they like the idea of being able to possibly take public transit into a game and, you know, instead of having to park and all that sort of stuff. So I still think it's going to be nonsense, but you know, it, it is really interesting because it used to be that a team could hold a city hostage by threatening to move to another area completely, right? Like, Ted Leonsis isn't talking about moving to Seattle, right? Like, he's not talking about moving to a place or Nashville or Kansas City or some other place. Like, he's just really, he's in the really fortunate position of being able to pit these, like, mid-sized suburban towns against one city. And that's really to his benefit. And I would I would say that if Adam Silver didn't want this to happen, it wouldn't happen, right? Like, you got to think that Adam Silver is somewhere behind here saying, like, cool, go ahead, do do whatever you got to do to get what you can get, right? Well, I mean, D.C. is the perfect spot for extortion. I mean, you have Virginia and Maryland that you can play Mm -hmm. off of each other as well. I mean, this is a classic. Jack and Cook did it with the Washington team threatening to move to Virginia, and it didn't happen. I mean, that's why I kind of frame this whole thing around, is this real or is this extortion? It's just such a classic play that it can be hard to distinguish what's real and what's fake. And, you know, another point I wanted to make to kind of broaden this out for folks who don't live in D.C., aren't familiar with D.C., is that this is just the kind of thing that if you're a a fan or you follow leagues, um, if you're a neutral, if you just look at things from a national perspective, that's just really invisible. Like we know, like fans notice when a team moves from Montreal to D.C., a baseball team. You know, fans notice a relocation like that. But when a team moves from Oakland to San Francisco, like the Warriors did, when a team moves from Detroit to Ar- Auburn Hills, like the Pistons did a generation ago, like the Braves that you've been talking about, it is just such a dramatic change for people within that market in terms of how they perceive the team, how they're able to follow the team, and just the jersey, the name on the jersey doesn't change, the you know the mascot doesn't necessarily change. But it's just such a dramatic shift, and it's often one that we don't think about unless it affects us. Yeah, and I and I don't want to pretend that like Ted Leonsis is some sort of uh, unique character here to that point, too, right? You know, when I was a city hall reporter in Shreveport, Louisiana, that's where I first started learning about the boondoggle of taxpayer subsidies for you know stadiums, convention centers, convention center hotels, that sort of stuff. And so, if you go actually and look at this website, it's one of my favorite ones, fieldofschemes dot com. Um, you can see this game being run on cities, municipalities, regions, counties all over this country every damn every damn month like it's like everybody has this sort of this playbook and you know it, and as bad as this is and it seems to be to broaden and out to your point Josh like it has probably happened where you are like no matter where you are if you're in a major metro area with a professional sports team it almost as surely happened that your one of your local uh political bodies has been held hostage by a, an owner seeking a sweeter deal. And D.C. paid $50 million for a Wizards practice facility. They paid a billion dollars for the National Stadium in the 2000s. Currently, the mayor, Muriel Bowser, is trying to get the commanders to come to D.C., speaking of playing different um, you know, government entities off of each other. And, you know, at the last minute here has, you know, upped 
DC's offer to $500 million, not the $600 million that Leonsis wants, but pretty damn close. And so, you know, I found David Aldridge's piece in The Athletic really interesting because he's clearly like grappling with what a lot of us are grappling with, which is, you know, a longtime DC guy is like, feels pretty devastated that the teams are potentially leaving, understands that these things are a boondoggle, and yet like writes in the piece, like Muriel Bowser cannot let this happen. That's why this field of schemes thing works, is that we mm-hmm. all understand that um, it's a bad deal and it can't and shouldn't be done, and yet it must. It must be done. How can we? How can we let this happen? If you draw a line in the sand, you end up becoming Oakland, which has lost every professional sports team it's had in short order. Right? Like they lost the Raiders, now they've lost the A's, and they lost the Warriors. So, like, you can make a stand. You can make the righteous stand on behalf of taxpayers. And you're still not going to win, more than likely. So, yeah, I mean, until... Yeah, it's a devil's bargain. Yeah, right. This is re- it's really hard. Like, this is not, this is not really a way to win. There is a way to win, but it involves the federal government passing a law yep. that says, cut it, like, cut it out. You can't do this anymore. Uh, <laughs> the, cut it out, been, the cut it out bill. <laughs> there have been efforts, uh, but they haven't gotten very far uh, and certainly have not gotten to the desk of any sitting president to rein in what any state or local government can offer for sports stadiums, but they don't pass. And I think that brings you back to a longer discussion about the kinds of people that own sports teams and the connections that they have in the political system and the difficulty of stopping them from doing something that can make them quite a bit of money that should belong to you and yours. Up next, we'll dive into the college football transfer portal and hopefully emerge on the other side with a scholarship offer. This season, Ohio State quarterback Kyle McCord threw 24 touchdowns and six interceptions and leading the Buckeyes to an 11-1 record, with the only blemish coming against Michigan, which, in fairness or maybe unfairness, is kind of the only game that matters for those two. And what about next season? Well, Ohio State quarterback Kyle McCord will no longer be Ohio State quarterback Kyle McCord, as he announced on Sunday that he is transferring to Syracuse. Joel, quarterback transfers are not a new phenomenon. The top three vote-getters for what you've termed the worst uh, Heisman Trophy ever this year, uh, LSU. That's, that, that's not true. That's not true. I saw Eric Crouch. Don't, 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 don't go there. But okay. All right. Let me rewind. The top three vote-getters for the perfectly normal Heisman Trophy this year, uh, LSU's Jaden Daniels, Washington's Michael Penix, and Oregon's Bo Nix were all playing for their second, second schools. But it feels to me like the college quarterback roulette wheel is spinning faster this year than ever before. Ten days ago, ESPN's Pete Thamel reported that there were more than 90 FBS quarterbacks in the portal, and nearly half of Power 5 schools, the biggest schools, were looking for a starting quarterback. So do you agree or do you think that this year is different? And if so, why? I don't know if this year is different, but I think the churn is probably moving faster than ever before because now, you know, there's just more people are aware of the benefits of taking advantage of the portal if they're a quarterback. And so are the teams, right? Like they're they're more likely to move on. And I actually think like what is different is this Kyle McCord thing. And Alex, you tell me if this has ever happened before, like a guy who is thriving 
at Ohio State. Like, I mean, I guess it depends on if you're an Ohio State fan, if like Michigan really is going to outweigh everything that Kyle McCord did this year. But you have a guy that thrived in his first year as a starter. Couple of plays from being 12 and 0. Couple plays from being in the playoffs right now, right? And leaves. And I, and because he chose Syracuse, it, you know, I don't want to be presumptuous, but you got to believe that he was encouraged to find another place, uh, to matriculate, right? Like, I don't, I don't think you yeah. go from, well, it would be cool to maybe throw again to Marvin Harrison Jr. in Carnell Tate or whoever else. May I just go to Syracuse? Like, that just doesn't, yeah, that doesn't seem like something not. you would choose if you didn't have to, right? And no offense to Syracuse. Um, and so like, that is what is different to me. I don't think I've ever, seen anything like this like it like in basketball it sometimes happened like Mike Krzyzewski had a thing for a few years where you know they may have a they I remember they had a point guard named Trayvon Duvall and he was pretty good mm-hmm. they thought he was going to be a freshman you know it, that he'd be an NBA draft pick or whatever and then they had another guy coming in the next year that was a five star and they're basically like you better get on out of here because we got some other guys coming in and that feels like what's happening here and I think the one thing that's sort of important to remember is that Ohio State really wasn't that hype on Kyle McCord. Like, if you remember, he was kind of a throw-in. They brought the, the quarterback class that he came in with at Ohio State included Quinn Ewers, who was the highest-rated quarterback recruit in the history of quarterback recruits at the time. So Transferred to Texas. Yeah, transferred to Texas, right? And so it just seems like even though Kyle McCord theoretically thrived, that even— like, I don't know, you're kind of shaking your head, Alex, so you tell me, but it just, it, <laughs> yeah. despite that, that it just wasn't enough, right? Yeah, he theoretically f- thrived. Uh, he was also the worst quarterback that Ohio State's had in five plus years. Ohio State is graded on a curve and, and they know it. Ryan Day, their head coach, knows it. Uh, he was a couple plays from being 12-0. and 0. He was also any number of dropped Notre Dame interceptions back in late September, early October from being 10 and two uh, and 10 and two at Ohio state is two and 10 at, <laughs> uh, at a typical school. You know, I, I've, we've talked about this before, but Joel, you certainly could uh, coach Ohio state to probably eight or nine <laughs> wins uh, having played. And I think Josh and I could, could do a solid bowl game. Um, what does that Ohio say State, about Luke Fickle, who quotes him to six wins then? It was the a weird year. It <laughs> says it was a weird year. And I think that things were falling apart uh, thanks to Tattoogate, as college sports fans will remember. Mm. And that was a weird circumstance. But you're right. Luke Fickle only coached him to six. I think that the, the average person off the street could coach him to six. Uh, <laughs> I think that there is, though, there are some things that are happening this year that have accelerated the quarterback and the general transfer musical chairs even beyond what they've been the past few years. And it's really the confluence of several different rules changes and on-field dynamics that I think other teams have just noticed. And of course, you know, when when Joe, Joe Burrow wins the Heisman a few years ago and Caleb Williams wins it last year after going from Oklahoma to USC and Jaden Daniels wins it this year after going from Arizona State to LSU, yes, more and more people just Kyler notice. Murray. Baker Mayfield, Kyler Murray, absolutely. Um, I think you just, you notice that this can work and uh, at such an important position, I think a lot of coaches just want someone with a little bit of proof of concept at the college level above high school ball, and that makes sense. But also the, the rules changes are pretty significant. And just in this past year, like in the last 12 months, the NCAA did away with a rule that had been kind of a break on transfer activity, which was that there used to be this policy that at FBS football, the top level of college football, you could only take 25 new scholarship players every year. And there was some funny math around that and you could kind of credit and debit a few on the edges, but 
you can only take 25 new players a year. And so that made it really risky to take a ton of transfers because then if they flamed out, then the next year um, you would have no other young talent matriculating up into your program from high school and you would basically just run out of new roster spots and you could even if you did it too much uh not have the opportunity to field 85 scholarship players the way that a typical college football program does that rule has been done away with um so you can now do what Deion sanders did at colorado and just tell almost your entire roster to get out of here and flip the entire thing uh in a matter of months and so that guardrail against transfers has gone away um, the NCAA has made it possible now to transfer for a first time without having to sit out a season, which was a rule that had been kind of flimsy and that there'd been a lot of waivers for in the last few years. That's gone away. Actually, as we record this, the NCAA is under a temporary restraining order that is making it so that even if you have transferred for a second time, uh, you no longer have to sit out um, for at least about eight more days as we're recording this. And I think eventually they're probably going to get beaten court and that policy is going to go away. So there are just all of these bureaucratic changes in the sport. Uh, and on top of that, I think you get further into the so-called name, image, and likeness era um, where athletes can get paid by third parties, by organized groups representing or, or working in tandem with schools. Uh, and that has accelerated too this year because the players who came into college football before that was allowed and thus maybe don't have it as part of their expectations of what they'll get from their school are starting to run out of eligibility. And new recruits now, they came in in 2021 when this was legal, maybe, or 2022 when it was even more legal and more more commonplace, um, or especially now. So you got all those rule changes. You got people who are, are coming into college football expecting that they're going to get paid pretty handsomely for their services to be a quarterback, a good quarterback. And sorry, I'm rambling now, can easily make one to two mil, easily, um, in, which still isn't NFL money in a lot of cases, but it's pretty good. Uh so all those things have come together, I think, to make this really has been kind of a special year of quarterback free agency. I um, think that what this shows, and we kind of understood it intellectually, but it's like really hit home for me. And and this is sort of the point you're making, Joel, about Kyle McCord, is that there's no such thing anymore of like a team and a player being stuck to each other. Like or growing together or whatever more kind of soft language you want to use. It's like it used to be when I was writing about this like 10 years ago, what we would write about is the scholarships back then were one year renewable and a coach could dump you if you like weren't up to snuff. It was kind of a one way street. Now it's like the the ties don't bind in either kind of direction. And the, um, the Kyle McCord thing, like, Sure, you're right, Alex. Like, maybe he didn't, like, kind of blow the doors off. But it's like this college football micro era is the only one in which a quarterback with that level of success would leave. Like, it just it just didn't happen before. And I, I think the teams, the programs, the players are just now kind of reckoning with this and what it means. That, like, a guy like Dylan Gabriel, who, you know, goes from UCF and has, like, a great year at Oklahoma— like he's leaving to go to Oregon now. Like you, you would think like okay, he like went and transferred. Now he's like trans transferring again. You have DJ DJ Uyangalele who left Clemson and had success at Oregon State. He's transferring again. Um, it just seems like even compared to you know two or three years ago, every kind of relationship between player and team just feels kind of more 
contingent. And, but, you know, maybe that's how it should be. It's probably better for the players that way, both kind of economically and given that they have clocks that expire. You know, there's no use in any of these guys sitting on a bench or playing in a situation that's not good for them. It's just the kind of, I guess, the cult, the cultural and social norms around this stuff just seem to be kind of changing very rapidly. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And real quick, I do want to, so I was thinking about this um, a second ago. I think we're wrong about the Kyle McCord thing. I'm just going to refer to him now as white Jalen Hurts because a lot of <laughs> NFL fans might not know this, but there was a time that fans didn't think Jalen Hurts was a very good college quarterback, that he was like the ceiling of some of Bama's most talented teams. And that's why he ended up in Oklahoma because he had to make way for Tua uh, Tagovailoa. So, so why didn't Ohio State bring in Devin Brown in the second half of the Michigan game? Is that Ryan Day's Ryan Day's bad? Ryan Day didn't have the guts of Nick Saban, uh, <laughs> which who who does? But yeah, I mean, just I think not tough enough. Is, just not tough enough. I mean, man, it was. I mean, it was a gutsy call. But um, I, I I think that like this is largely a good thing, though, right? Like in the moment, like if if it has to be this way, at least the players can have a little bit of agency and find a landing place. Because the thing that you know, you know, Alex and and, and Josh, you both have talked about this is that when you were in school before, and if you found yourself at a place that you didn't think was a good fit or the coaches were going to play you or whatever. Like like anybody that picks a college for any reason, football, you know, engineering program, whatever, and you don't think it's a good fit. Well, it used to be that you didn't have any recourse, right? And you would just get stuck there and maybe you're, they wouldn't renew your scholarship or whatever else, or you would just get buried on a death chart. At least now players have an opportunity to find, an op- you know, somewhere to go. Like we're, we're talking about Kyle McCord going to Syracuse as if it's death, but at a minimum, they want him. Right. They they want him. They may invest in him and they may build a team around him and maybe he'll go on and have some success there. And that just didn't used to happen. So I'm happy Absolutely. for that. But yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The alternative for him in in a different era, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, is that he's benched next year because Ohio State's going to get a look and find someone better than him. And he's benched and he just sits and then. Maybe he gets to go to an NFL training camp a year later, or maybe he leaves college early, even though he's not ready for the NFL. Um, it is an improvement, and and there's a lot of messy parts of the way that the sport right now uh, works right now. I think we're in an in between before kind of the ultimate answer to whatever player compensation looks like at the highest levels of the sport and everywhere else beyond that. And so it is messy, and there are problems, and I think it's tough for fans of programs who you know, develop a good player over two or three years. And then that guy gets plucked because he gets a better opportunity, better cash offer from a third party collective to go and play for Notre Dame, for instance, took Wake Forest quarterback, Sam Harbin like this (laughs) last year. And just took uh, Duke's quarterback, Riley Leonard. I mean, they're just using the ACC as their farming system, basically. But yeah. (laughs) That is better than what it was, um, which was a completely one-sided power dynamic schools over players where players had very little recourse if things were going badly for them, even for reasons that weren't their fault uh, and where they couldn't collect any kind of compensation for their services. Uh, Whereas now they got to kind of pretend something is what it isn't and pretend that, you know, you're being paid for advertising or whatever by a third party instead of just a fee for service, but at least it's better than it was. Well, it's funny because we've highlighted all of these guys, you know, Jaden Daniels, Michael Penix, and Bo Nix being only the recent example, most recent examples who made these amazing decisions for their careers. But like, you know, obviously there's going to be a flip side. Like what was Spencer Sanders thinking transferring 
from being a starter at Oklahoma State. Would you trust what Lane Kiffin told you? To not Certainly. playing at all at Ole Miss. Like you have, you know, agency to make these decisions and some of them will be good and some of them will, will end up being bad. And so, yeah, maybe Kyle McCord goes from potentially being benched to being a starter, but some guys will go from being a starter to, to being benched. That's just how it works. But Alex, I wanted to dig in on something that you kind of dropped in as an aside earlier, the $1 to $2 million thing, which Matt Rule, the Nebraska head coach, mentioned, I think, in a comment that got aggregated a lot, that to get a starting quarterback in the portal, you need to pay $1.5 million. Do you think it's surprising that the actual financial compensation that these guys get is still kind of really under wraps. I mean, it came out with the like Jaden Rashada thing, the quarterback who had committed to Florida and then then ended up leaving. There was like $7 million was kind of thrown around. But that was really a one-off case. And I don't know, is it surprising that we don't like actually know how much money Dylan Gabriel got? We don't know how much money that Kyle McCord got. Or it, it just feels like we're now operating with the money under the table in just like a slightly different way. Like we just don't, we don't know on a case by case basis how much these guys are getting. No, we don't know. And it's difficult because if you say we should know, then what you're saying is, okay, college students, let me have a nice look inside your wallet and I want to see your finances. And uh, that's personal information. These are still young people who aren't technically even being paid by the universities that they play for. Uh, on the other hand, there's a reason, well, there are numerous reasons. This isn't the only one that every NFL contracts, every NFL contract is public. Um, it has to be filed with the players association, obviously to make sure that it's on the up and up and within compliance with NFL rules, but also, uh, salary transparency tends to be pretty good. And we talk about that in fields ranging to journalism and podcasting. And I don't think it is good that nobody really has a window into what other people are paying and getting. Um, you know, I'd love to believe that markets are efficient and that they're all going to sort things out and everyone's going to get a fair rate. This seems like a classic example of what would be an extremely inefficient market. <laughs> yes. Uh, but, you know, it, it's not. And I'm sure it opens up a lot of room for for problems. But I don't know, Joel, I wonder if, if this had been the scheme when you were running the ball at TCU and I said, hey, Joel, like, tell me exactly what you got paid by TCU's NIL collective <laughs> so that I can make it easier for the running back at Baylor to strike a fair deal. W would you have said at 18 or 19 or 20, yeah, cool, Alex, I'll tell you everything? I don't know, maybe. I mean, it would have been tough. I mean, I, I guess, you know, girls would be paying attention. They've been reading the newspaper, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> hey, I make $75,000 a year, you know? What? <laughs> yeah. I'm not just staying on the dorm, you know? So I, 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 I might have been cool with it. Um, but don't you think like all this is really timely given, you know, the new NCAA president's like proposed rule changes? Like this all seems like for the first time in my life, I actually believe that there is going to be the sort of change that everybody has been calling for, right? Like the, like all the conversations we're having are building towards something that Chip Kelly actually talked about uh, after the LA Bowl win over Boise State that football is just going to go independent. Maybe you'll get that transparency. Maybe you won't, but it'll be more of a formal employer relationship with these universities that is sort of stripped away from like the educational mission of all this. And it'll be basically semi-pro football, right? Like that, it seems like we're all building to that for the first time in my life. And that maybe we might see that even sometime in the next five years. Yeah. And there's going to be problems with that too. You know, I think that even those of us who think that players need to be compensated fairly for what they're doing on the field, 
a lot of us still think, and I, I count myself in this group, I'm cool with it that there has to be an academic requirement to play for co- for a college football team. Like, I'm okay with that personally. Um, in the same way that I'm okay with it, if you got to be a student at a school to work in the visitor center or do any number of, of different campus jobs. I also think that going to a world where uh, athletes are expected to generate a specific financial return and or can be fired, which would be part of an employer-employee relationship, um, would would be very troubling. By the same token, I think collective bargaining sounds pretty decent, uh, even if I think that in the first couple of, of cycles that the players would probably get rolled because they'd be very inexperienced in negotiating for these kinds of things. Uh, a mess. And it's it's a complete mess. And at least, at least the NCAA president, Charlie Baker, seems motivated to do something. I don't know if it's exactly the right thing, but it's something. It's not just sitting on his hands which is what all of his predecessors did. It's motivated because if they don't do something that like, it'll be taken out of their hands. Oh yeah. Right. And they're still, I mean, they're still going to Congress every month now to beg for an antitrust exemption so that they can put in place national caps, more restrictions on, on athlete compensation. And it's just not forthcoming. Like nobody looks at, you know, we, Josh, you live in DC. We all know political reporters here at Slate. Like you talk to like someone who, actually like works and lives on Capitol Hill and and is familiar with the intimate dynamics of of how bills become laws and things of that sort. Nobody, like they laugh when they think, when you ask them if the NCAA is going to get the kind of federal intervention that they've been clamoring for for three, four years now. They laugh and maybe they'll have the last laugh years down the line, but it seems foolish to bank on that. So uh, you got to come up with something on your well, own rather they're, than get bailed they're out. They're busy working on getting Florida State into the playoff. That's that's yes. That's, that's <laughs> yes. Scott is focusing on the important things. Yeah. If you enjoyed this conversation, and if you didn't, then there's something wrong with you. Um, then you should check out Alex's college football podcast, Split Zone Duo, um, and also check out his writing in Slate. Alex will be back with us for our bonus segment momentarily. But for now, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you both. Now it is time for After Balls, sponsored by Bennett's Prune Juice, endorsed by Kenny Sailors, who says it was okay. On Sunday in Tampa, Florida, one of many American cities that have a place in Joel's heart. Great place. Uh, the University of Texas, a place in America that is not close to Joel's heart, uh, swept Nebraska to win uh, its second straight NCAA women's volleyball title, the first one on broadcast television. This match aired on ABC. It's been a huge year for volleyball. It was pretty much a trouncing for the Horns, and it got trouncier as it went along with uh, Texas beating Nebraska 25-22, 25-14, 25-11. Three straight sets. That's That was surprising. So A little surprising. Uh, Texas landed three players on the all-tournament team, one of them being freshman setter Ella Swindle, and the other two being daughters of NBA players. The tourney's most outstanding player, Madison Skinner, her dad being longtime uh, NBA center Brian Skinner, had 16 kills in the final. And this was her third NCAA title, speaking of the transfer portal. She won one with Kentucky before transferring to Texas and taking the last two. And then there is Asia O'Neill, daughter of uh, center Jermaine O'Neal, longtime NBA player. If you don't know her story, it's remarkable that she was even out there at all, given that she's had two open heart surgeries. 
But out there she was, serving 10 consecutive points during the second set to break the match wide open. And Joel, I know you have your issues with the University of Texas, but maybe you'll Mm -hmm. make an exception for Asia after you hear uh, about this incident from Sunday's final. So in the break, we learned that Asia O'Neill got a yellow card for basically taunting through the net. Yeah, and I love that intensity from Asia O'Neill. I'm but, not shocked that you're saying that. But the rule is you're not allowed to cheer through the net. You have to turn pretty immediately and cheer and celebrate with your teammates. Do they do teammates. that in men's sports? They don't, and I love it. Do they do that in men's sports? I find that hilarious because in volleyball, more than any other sport, the whole kind of culture of just like completely over-the-top celebration oh, after every, every single point. point. Every point. Yeah. It, it and yet you just serious. have to turn you have to turn to the side. I'm turning to the side of my microphone. You can't you can't taunt through the net. Asia O'Neill is doing an amazing service for the sport and for the culture, for the world, by normalizing front facing celebration in volleyball. I, I you know what? That puts her somewhere in my top four of favorite UT athletes. I'll TJ give her that. Ford, Vince Young, Vince Young, Asia. Earl Campbell. Asia. No, well, I, I didn't include Earl, but he's maybe top five. I, I really was a big Ricky Williams fan. I, I dug his style. So, Since I haven't been able to bring it up anywhere else in the show, it just popped into my head. What did you think of the Titans-Texans game with the Titans wearing the Houston Oilers throwbacks? Don't even get me Unbelievable started on that troll shit. Move. I mean... I mean, what the fuck? Get your own identity, uh, Titans. Like, is it not enough? Like, it, I mean, you found out that your nickname, your branding is inconsequential to the broader NFL public. Like, nobody gives a shit about a Titans jersey or jacket. I've never seen anybody in the wild, because um, I've I've only been to Nashville once, but I've never seen anybody give a shit about the Titans. You Soon you throw your oil and shit on, everybody cares about you guys. So, like, it just says, says something about, like, what you've been able to do since you've been in Nashville. Was there, Not was there I'm any, mad about it. Was there any cognitive dissonance for you seeing the Oilers play the Texans? Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just so weird and stupid. Like, yeah, I mean, I, it's confusing because... I can't help but see that uniform and like my childhood memories get all stirred up. You know what I mean? Like I'm, you know, I mean, I guess you know, Will Levis didn't. Will Levis is no Cody Carlson, but um, it just I don't want to, I don't want to see that again. Yeah, it's just I and, and, and it's clear that they're only doing it to troll Houston fans. You know what I mean? Like it's not like this is not a real part of their identity. Like it's trolling, just trolling fans. How dare they? Yeah, I know that's yeah, not I mean, in your that's, value that's system. Terrible. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that, and I don't understand why they would do it. You know. All right, Joel. What is your Asia O'Neill? So two Sundays ago, about 1,000 people in a Fargo, North Dakota gym saw a historically lopsided game of college basketball. Non-conference college basketball schedules regularly produce laughable results because major conference programs are looking to pad their record with sure wins and a bunch of small college programs desperately need their payouts. And that's surely why North Dakota State welcomed tiny private school from Minnesota called Oak Hills Christian College for a game on December 10th. It also hope, happened to be Junior Bison Club Day and wear an ugly holiday sweater day there in Fargo. Um, no word on how ugly the sweaters were, but the game was pretty unsightly. Uh, North Dakota State won 108-14. to 14. Uh, The Bison's 94-point margin of victory tied the modern men's Division I college basketball record because in 2019, Utah was the first to set the record in a 143-49 to 49 win over Mississippi Valley State. And on paper... 
The game was as one-sided as the score indicated. After jumping out to a 10-4 lead, North Dakota State went on to score the next 24 points to take a 34-4 lead. Oak Hills Christian's Emmanuel Coffey hit a free throw with 9.35 left in the first half to make the score 34-5. And Oak Hills didn't score again until 17 seconds in the second half when Josiah Moulton's layup made it 60-7. So that was almost 10 minutes of scoreless basketball for poor Oak Hills. In all, the Wolfpack made just six of their 49 field goal attempts. That's a little more than 12%. They committed 23 turnovers, fewer than I actually expected, to be honest. And they were out-rebounded 59-14. to So, hey, it was just another night for the North Dakota State Bison. All 12 of their players who entered the game scored at least two points, and 11 of those players finished with at least five points. Of course, I'm sure you don't need me to tell you that North Dakota State is no powerhouse. The Bison lost their next game two nights later, 75-65 to at Illinois State to drop their record to 7-4 and on the season. But Oak Hills Christian, not since Bishop Sycamore has an overwhelmed opponent turned into such a national punchline. And it seems things I thought you were going to say when, an overwhelmed opponent with a tree in its name. <laughs> oh, I didn't even think about that, but that makes sense. <laughs> uh, guys, assume that uh, I meant to say that and that Josh said it for me with the tree in its name. So yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it really seems that things started when North Dakota State announced the win on its Twitter account. You know, no caption, no joke, just the score. And from there, the posts and jokes and the pictures started making their way around the timeline. So here's one tweet. If you got the 10 most recent people who told you they could have went D1 but never played college basketball and put them against a D1 team, this would be a result. Uh, and the game might have even been too sicko for the sickos committee, which, t- which simply retweeted the ND State tweet and said... What the what? Um, and of course, you know, there's a story behind how this team and school came together. Oak Hills Christian College was founded in 1927 in Bemidji, Minnesota. The school has little more than 100 students and according to the school is a Christian academic community whose mission is to provide biblically centered higher education. Oak Hills isn't part of the NCAA. It's not even part of the NAIA. Its athletic program competes in something called the ACCA, the Association of Christian College Athletics. That's a collection of about 17 schools that include Arlington Baptist University, Ozark Christian College, and the University of Los Angeles College of Divinity, uh, ULACD, one of the powers. Um, So look, currently Oak Hills Christian's roster lists just one player taller than six foot four. And seriously, I encourage all of you listening to stop right now, go online and look at its roster page. As one person on Twitter said, They played a church league team. And I mean, yeah, actually, kind of, they did pretty much. Its head coach doubles as a faculty advisor and instructor for the business program. As you might expect, even in the little old ACCA, Oak Hills hasn't done much winning. The Wolfpack has won only two of its 11 games this year, including an earlier 79-point loss to Bemidji State on November 16, and a 72-point loss to Dickinson State on November 24th. Look. This isn't a visual medium, so I can't show you the link to the highlights that are circulating on social media. But I promise you, Oak Hills looks exactly like a team that lose by nearly 100 points to a Division One or even a Division Two basketball team. So here's a clip from the loss. This is one of the announcers calling a Jordan Poole-esque three-point attempt from six-foot-one sophomore Jonah Nutson. Move your feet. And I like what I like about the. Oh. 
yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of that going on in the, in the clip. So uh, <laughs> that is a lot of, oh. Um, but there's something a lot less funny about this team and its school. In fact, prior to last week, almost nothing was known about Oak Hills' basketball team. And much more was known about its legacy of anti-LGBTQ discrimination. In fact, the school was once ranked among the, quote, absolute worst campuses for LGBTQ youth by Campus Pride. Homosexuality is forbidden at Oak Hills, and employment applicants must affirm that they understand that. Students must sign a similar waiver, which states, in part, by contrast, followers of Jesus Christ will repent and flee from sinful attitudes or actions such as sexual sins, immorality, lust, adultery, homosexuality, immodesty, orgies, pornography, sexual violence. So obviously that's not a place where Rick Pitino can coach and they're not going to be able to build a powerhouse program there. But look, Oak Hills Christian College doesn't play again until January 5th when the Wolfpack travels to Kansas City, Kansas to play Kansas Christian College. And that's a game where they may actually have a chance. Kansas Christian is 3-3, three and three, coming off a 34-point loss to something called Mid-American Christian. So, look, there's apparently a lot of God in that league, but not a lot of good basketball. I have seen the highlights, and I can endorse everything that Joel said about them. The I was a little bit maybe underwhelmed by the scoring runs that you described in that game because I watched <laughs> some of the LSU women's basketball game against McNeese State the other day that oh, LSU yeah. won 133 to 44, 89 point margin. <laughs> um, after three quarters, it was 100 to 24, and the game included an 82 to 9 run. 82 to 9 run. Wow. And I mean, also they're doing a 56 it in, to 2 run. 50. Damn. It's pretty. That's, I mean, I guess this is LSU basketball. Like everybody's working together harmoniously. Angel Reese is back out there, you know, dishing it out. Was that the game that Mo- Kim Moki got kicked out of the other day, or was that a different that was, one? That was a different one. That yeah, was a different one. She was oh. on her best behavior. Well, I guess she didn't have a lot to be mad about in the way Why would you do Lake Charles like that? That's not nice. That is our show for today. On that note, our producer is Kevin Bendis. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson and Alex Kirshner, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening.